you know, Archera could be a catalyst to push across the whole industry, which is saying, hey, we no longer need manual processes to manage spend. Hi, folks. Welcome into HashMap on Tap today. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Kelly Koleffel, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Aran Khanna, Aran's co-founder and CEO at Archera. They're delivering an AI-based cloud resource automation solution. They actively manage and de-risk your cloud resources. We all need that, obviously. Helps you avoid wasting what we don't want to waste is your cloud dollars. Everyone's very valuable. Prior to starting Archera, Aran spent time at both AWS and he was also on the Azure team at Microsoft. And he also co-founded Glia Intelligence. Hopefully I pronounced that right, Aran. Hey, welcome yep. into the show. I hope you're doing really well today. I have to ask, what are you drinking? I am drinking a nice fizzy lemon LaCroix right now. And thank you so much for having me, Kelly. It's great to be here with you. Wonderful to have you. Uh, I have got a sparkling beverage as well, sparkling water. I, I tend to go towards, uh, we have HEBs. I'm in the Texas area. We have HEBs here. I've got an organic uh, lemon strawberry. We usually, it's a popular drink in my house and uh, we usually keep a pretty good pantry of those stocked up. So uh, we'll enjoy those during the show. Cheers. All right, cheers. Next time I'm in Austin, I'm going to have to come down and, and grab a, a few cases of those. Those look really good. They are very <laughs> good. Yeah, I don't know how much HEB is expanding. They may just be Texas still, but well, Aron, it's great to have you in. Like we said, why don't you take just a moment, give us a little bit more info on your background, how you got into technology. I'm always interested in that. And then what you're doing today as co-founder CEO at Archera. Awesome. Well, you know, just uh, there's a short version, a long version, a medium version. I'll stick with the medium version, right. give just enough meat there to uh, keep things interesting without getting getting boring and pedantic here. A little bit of background on me. I was actually born and raised in Seattle. I like to say that I'm about as cloud native as they come because <laughs> actually my parents worked at Amazon and Microsoft when I was growing up. And my first job ever was at uh, Microsoft on a little research team that became Windows Azure. So I, I quite literally got into the cloud, uh, you know, in many ways, just by happenstance of being born and raised here in Seattle. But you know, really, I think before that, uh, I, I was quite interested in technology broadly. I went to college actually thinking I was going to work in biotech uh, and not in in deep kind of cloud technology mm -hmm. or infrastructure technology. Uh, and what I realized during my first internship in the biotech space was that, you know, to get an answer back on an experiment, instead of taking two seconds and hitting the button, compiling the thing and letting it run, it would take two weeks and two months because I got to put the thing in the in the cell tube and culture it, let the things grow. Half of the time they die or fungus gets to them. And, you know, maybe I get an answer at the end of the of the road there. So I, I got pretty fed up pretty quickly. I, I kind of have a little bit of ADD. I wanted to get stuff done yeah. uh, right away. And technology was the uh, really only path that allowed me to build really quickly, create interesting and useful things and do that in a very rapid manner that I think a lot of the other avenues I explored uh, early on in my career just didn't allow me to do. And so I threw myself kind of fully into technology and have really expanded beyond the cloud in, in my time there. But at least with our chair, I've come back to the cloud because I think it's a very interesting space. And um, the problem domain has evolved so much so that it's like, you know, a very meaty, I think, relevant problem for a number of customers who just before it was not on their radar in 2012, 2013. But, you know, some of my work has been in the privacy space. I actually worked yeah. a lot on platform transparency with consumer applications, most notably Facebook, which actually fired me from my internship for pointing out uh, some of the grievous privacy issues in their messenger platform. Uh, and then I actually worked in the deep learning research space, which is actually how I got pulled back into the cloud. I was working at a small startup called Marianas Labs, uh, created by a professor at Carnegie Mellon, building a open source deep learning framework that helped folks run uh, their models on hardware like GPUs and other accelerators. Uh, and that actually ended up getting acquired by Amazon to become their deep learning framework of choice. And we became the AI team that launched SageMaker, DeepLens, which is a project that I was working on, uh, Recognition, and a number of the other services within that broader Amazon AI suite. So really kind of an interesting ping-ponging between a number of different areas in tech, but always came back to the cloud. And in that time at Amazon most recently, and from my previous time at Azure, really started to see the problems that came with larger organizations adopting the cloud or organizations that are small growing into large organizations with really poor cloud management practices that are the ones being 
parroted by vendors, parroted by ISVs that created a lot of manual overhead and, and didn't really take advantage of some of the interesting benefits of the cloud that I saw, such as the fact that you could actually trade around stuff in real time within the data center uh, and create these very interesting constructs that allowed for more flexibility with less lock with you know less sort of overhead in terms of management and even higher savings rates. So those are things that kind of drew me to starting Archera after my time at AWS. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, stands to reason you've got this uh, really incredible kind of AI background. You've got all this cloud experience. You mentioned pre-Azure. Just seems like, you know, Azure and AWS, everything's been around. It, but when you go back, it, it really hasn't been that long, right? It's just pervasive now, but uh, very cool to hear kind of the, uh, that early Azure days and then AWS as well. I do have to ask you, I, you know, not something that I had really planned on, but do you, is there is there a platform or, or is there one of the public clouds that you see that is tougher to control costs on, Azure or AWS? Which one do you, do your customers seem to hate to say it waste more money on? <laughs> well, the thing is that they're all difficult in different ways. Okay, and by virtue of volume. I think AWS is the one where we see the most waste because you know that's where the most dollars are being spent, frankly, but also that's where the number of options is the greatest, which leads to complexity that becomes harder to navigate. And I think in the space of all outcomes leads to folks choosing the suboptimal outcome more frequently. So we definitely see that as a pattern, but it's not to say that there's not issues across all of these providers because the fundamental thing here is that you're going from a CapEx model to an OpEx model, which means that you are trying to, and I worked on a lot of the pricing side of you know, cloud offerings when I was at AWS and Azure, you're trying to translate this capital expenditure and operating cost for a specific box in a data center to something that can be built on demand or with you know one week of lock-in, one month of lock-in. Mm -hmm. You have all these different parameters that, you know, if you were in the old world going to Dell and HP trying to negotiate the price of a box, you could kind of get to all of those points by negotiating the contract differently. Now it has to be done programmatically. You need to create all of these offerings, you know, 70, 80 different offerings per resource to try and match what you could do in the old on-prem world. And therein lies the complexity. It's a function of the supply chain. It's a function of the fact that you have a data center on the back end here. And I think these vendors are all in different stages oh. of exposing that complexity to the customers. So in the limit, I think, even if there are clouds that are less complex now, A, they're more expensive because they don't give you that optionality to get closer and closer to the kind of net cost of the hardware. But B, over time, as especially kind of the network storage and compute becomes commoditized, I think you're going to see that complexity explode across all of these vendors because they have to compete on every one of those dimensions. In your, in your opinion, Aron, is anybody close to the big three, AWS, Azure, GCP, is anybody else even in the same conversation generally? Well, Alibaba, I think, is uh, kind of up there. And in fact, I think they're they're above a few of those uh, that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But generally, I would say the big three are at least within our customer base, yeah. you know, by and far like 80 plus percent of volume. And we see folks using Oracle, we see folks using IBM, yeah. but in terms of volume, uh, it, even if they are using it, it's not as great. But I think that could change. Okay. Okay. Talk to me about that. I mean, how, what, what do you, when do you see this changing? Why do you see it changing? What are the factors around that? I know we're going to get into more about what you guys do, but I'm just, just curious about your perspective on the cloud in general. Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things, right? One is that I see the space, particularly around infrastructure as a service, becoming more and more commodified. If you look today, and you know, AWS used to say in 2011, this is a commodity, but really it wasn't. It wasn't priced like one, it wasn't run like one. But if you look today at the number of different ways to purchase resources, it's gotten larger and larger and larger because of the fact that they are matching closer and closer to the cost of actually buying and operating those boxes. So you're seeing the competition, particularly on the commitments pricing side and the enterprise pricing side, um, get really close between these vendors. What that means is that I think a lot more folks like you know Oracle, IBM, et cetera, can come in and using some of that uh, you know 
pricing technology, those pricing techniques can get really competitive offerings in the marketplace. I know on the low end, Oracle's done an incredible job getting startups onto their platform with really attractive pricing for these commodity resources. On the other side, I think there's a software uh, evolution that's happened where it's become more and more uh, kind of commonplace to use these middleware technologies like Kubernetes, like Terraform or Pulumi that allow you to have a much higher degree of portability of workloads between these commodity infrastructure services. So the cost actually of running a multi-cloud, a multi-vendor uh, deployment is very close or getting a lot closer to that cost of renting the hardware from that vendor, given those kind of pricing constructs they've put in front of you with a lot lower dev time to actually make those sorts of transitions. And what we're seeing as well is that there are reasons beyond just cost to do this. You know, you saw AWS go down like three times last quarter, and that was representative of a single point of failure. Even if there are multiple availability zones, they all go down because of a software bug. That's not redundancy. So there's actually a impetus in the market to make this portability more and more robust. So I think the trends that I see are a world in which it's going to be easier to run between vendors and vendors are going to realize that they need to get closer and closer to commodity pricing to win share. Um, which I think will open the door to a lot more vendors in the space. Very interesting. Hey, when your when your team reached out to me, they uh, they really caught my attention. Taking a bite out of Apple, and and obviously, company you know the Fang companies have been uh, you know have had a massive cloud presence for a long time. They've done tremendous things in their own data centers, but also in the cloud. And so I, I was really interested too to get your uh, your perspective for companies like Apple, Netflix, others. You mentioned Facebook earlier. What do you see that they're doing really well? And for somebody who's not a that type of company, what can you take from them? What can be used for other types of organizations? Maybe a more traditional organization yeah. that is, well, a couple of things. More traditional organization that is not, you know, doesn't really have tech products or, or data as their product, but even even a startup that is maybe a fintech, health, health tech startup, but doesn't have that scale. What can I use? What should I... Maybe what should I throw away too? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great question. And actually it gets right to the core of why I started Archera in the first place. Uh, when I was at Amazon, I saw this bifurcation when I was trying to sell this very expensive managed machine learning service to customers. When I'd go to the high end, to the Netflixes, to the Airbnbs of the world, they would actually have a dedicated team of folks who are automating all or pretty much all of the cloud management tasks to a degree that you really could only do with software, data scientists, and a full team of folks um, behind them and making it so that engineers don't have to worry about uh, cloud management, about costing, about a lot of this pedantic stuff that, you know, on the low end of the market, AWS is telling people to train all of your engineers, get them certified um, so that they could be the owners of uh of the cost of the spend of efficiency within their domains. And that sort of distinction led me to think, well, hey, why is it that the high end of the market is getting so much more efficiency, is running so much more um, sort of tightly with respect to their utilization and cost versus, you know, folks who are, you know, old school industrial companies or telecoms that might even be approaching that scale. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really a function of you know, A, having the margin to put pull people aside and throw them on this problem. But B, it's really a function of a change in process that I thought, um, you know, Archera could be a catalyst to, uh, you know, really push across the whole industry, which is saying, hey, we no longer need manual processes to manage spend. We no longer need engineering going and labeling things, then finance reporting on it, and then engineering terminating stuff that's unused, and then finance going and telling them to right size, and then that happening, and then a finance going and forecasting, and then engineering going and validating forecasts. That is the current process that I pushed on my customers who said, I can't adopt your really expensive machine learning service because I don't know how to manage the commodity compute I have today. Mm -hmm. And I'd go back to them and they'd say, hey, I implemented this thing. It took tons of engineering time. It was expensive because I had to buy all of these visibility tools that were backwards looking. And great, I know where I was burning money in the past, but this doesn't give me an operating model to move forward that allows me to move fast and get the benefit of the cost reductions that I need to enable SageMaker or enable this uh, expensive machine learning initiative. 
So really the, the idea is how do we make this an automated process? How do we take that software, the technology, that five-person team at Lyft and boil it down into a SaaS offering that can be plugged in and can give you 90 plus percent of uh, not just the operational capabilities, but then the negotiating power that comes with it. Because uniquely what we're doing is not just automating this process, but then taking the higher fidelity predictions that that automation brings in terms of what's going to be used, how much is going to be used, when is it going to be used, to then put our skin in the game and share risk with the customers. So for example, something that we allow our customers to do that I only saw done before at the Apple and the Netflix scale is saying, hey, here's the predicted usage for this specific service in your infrastructure. Here's what's being used. You don't know if it's going to be used for a year and a half, for two years, for three years. I'm going to commit for all that infrastructure for three years to get the deepest discount. And guess what happens if it goes unused after a year and a half or two years? Because I have so much certainty in the other parts of the infrastructure and also these other customers that can trade these contracts, these commitments with you on the back end, I can actually guarantee that if it goes unused, we'll take that risk right off your books as Archera. Uh, and that's something that I saw down on the high end with really large companies negotiating through AWS, but I've never seen it done on the low end. And trying to do that through software, I think, is a really big lever to help customers get that flexibility, get that peace of mind while still automating this process. So the last thing you want is a robot just running up your bill in the back end. You want to have some risk mitigation if you are automating this. Absolutely. I mean, that sounds really interesting. What what kind of impact so i mean how often does that happen where you do have to remove something off the the cloud book so to speak for a client is is it a is it a regular occurrence nine out of ten customers or is it something we worry about but in practice doesn't happen all that all that often yeah i think in terms of it happens to every customer right no customer is perfect at predicting how often it happens to a given customer i think that varies based on how dynamic their environment is and you know, really what we've seen is that having this idea of a guarantee, a backstop for risk, will actually enable customers to operate with net new strategies. Things like, hey, you know, I wouldn't have covered or bought commitments for this data warehouse because I'm migrating it from EC2 into you know, Snowflake in six months or eight months. But because I have this tool in my back pocket, I can actually plan around the fact that I can de-risk or sell back these commitments and actually put a year commitment or a three-year commitment in place. And then actually on the back end, make sure that however long it takes for my engineering team to migrate it, I still am operating at the lowest cost possible and I can actually budget for that. So there's there's new strategies I think that unlocks that while you know with a naive approach, it would be used maybe once a quarter, people like this offering enough, they'll incorporate into strategies and use it once a month or even once a yeah. week. What a, are you, and it sounds like you're covering not only the, I'll call it the cloud native services. You're you're looking at things like you know S3 usage or EC2 use, whatever those things are that are native to the cloud platform. But it sounds like you're covering third party services running within that cloud as well. Is that accurate? Yeah. So managed services from the cloud providers, for example, are, are a great example of this. Right. You have uh, a number of services built on top of EC2 that also have their own commitment types and are part mm -hmm. of that product stack. And then even beyond that, you have things like Kubernetes um, that provides another layer of abstraction that you have to drill in on. And really, our goal is to help customers understand for a specific product or service what is the net cost of the whole stack? And natively from day one, we want to make it vendor agnostic because your stack, if you are a modern service, doesn't just live in AWS anymore. It doesn't just live in EC2 and S3. It lives between you know, this Snowflake table, this set of Kubernetes pods, this you know, Azure Cosmo DB, and these EC2 instances and this CloudFront deployment. So you want to see all of that in a single pane of glass. And then you want to understand as you roll forward and predict what that consumption is going to look like, how those different components are going to scale, and then how you're going to commit to those components and then budget for them. Uh, and that has to happen in one place, one paid in glass, because it's one budget and one product. And I think what's interesting about a lot of the legacy tools is they come from a world where the single cloud, the single set of services was the norm. Uh, and I think we've very quickly moved away from that from an engineering perspective as we move to this more multi-vendor, uh, multi-cloud world. 
What are you, it's really an interesting model too, because I, I love the fact that you're able to not only kind of monitor and, and automate, but you're doing these predictions. Take me behind the scenes on, on just a little bit of a, a glimpse into how are you doing these predict? Let's say use Snowflake as an example a couple of times. I'm running Snowflake in AWS. Uh, maybe I've been on Snowflake for six months. I've been running some data warehouse workloads, planning on doing some other things. What goes into, is this completely uh, an AI-driven prediction machine, or is there some sort of qualitative analysis around that as well that you guys put into it? How, how does that work? Yeah, so so this is another key thing. I think if you look in the industry today, and it was very interesting coming from a machine learning background, particularly a research background, all of the tools that I gave to customers to help them predict what specific pieces of their infrastructure were going to do in the future were purely backwards looking, purely sort of log linear models or simple linear models. And it didn't actually take into account what we see as the big drivers of Delta in cloud spend, things like long-term migration, right-sizing plans, expected price reductions, and then expected growth in the underlying business, which often engineers don't have, but the business team has. So we actually had to rebuild what forecasting looked like from the ground up. And it's not a purely AI-driven thing. It's AI plus humans because it has to be. So the things that we do are after we automate the tagging and attribution of costs to different business units or segments of your kind of overall cloud estate, we can then help you say, look, what is the driver of this cost? You know, for example, we have a customer that uh, is almost like a ride sharing platform. They do it for scooters and they basically have to track the state of every single ride. So if you can tell me the number of rides per day, I can show you how those auto scaling groups moved up and down. I can tell you how you know the different databases are scaling as that goes up over time. And then I can say, look, tell me what you're gonna do over the next three months. What is your prediction? What are your three scenarios? Then I'll tell you what that infrastructure is going to do. But you also have to tell me, do you plan on right-sizing this? Do you plan on moving this to a more efficient instance type? And then I can come in with data like, what are the expected price reductions that AWS is going to bring to this? All of that has to come in before we ever get to what that line looks like. And you'll be surprised because the delta between doing all of that analysis and coming up with a scenario, a forecasted scenario versus just drawing a line on cost, you know, you could get a 50% difference there. So I would say without building a kind of full-fledged environment that is geared towards marrying that human and business knowledge with the best-in-class understanding of cloud and predictive modeling, you're never going to get a high enough fidelity forecast to actually go and put your dollar on, to go and put skin in the game against. Mm. And, and that was really our, our first goal. We want something that's forward-looking, not backwards-looking, which is where you know, when I started this company, the industry around cloud costs was really centered, visibility and backwards looking. So do you, is there a, a rough percentage that you could give us that you say, hey, I'm going to be forward looking prediction wise based on everything that's gone into our assumptions based on what our models are telling us as well. I, I should be or you've seen that you're within a, a 10 or a 20 or 30 percent variance that next year. Is there is there some rule of thumb there that you can give? Yeah, I mean, usually, and again, this depends on the customer, right? Because we yeah. have customers are like this, we have customers are like this, you know, sorry, this is an audio podcast. I was, I was showing a big squiggly line versus yeah. a small squiggly line. And, and what, what we generally say is, you know, we can get between kind of error bounds between 10 and 25% okay. um, with the scenarios. And, you know, the incremental savings you can expect, the incremental efficiency can go anywhere from 25% all the way up to 70% depending on the state you're in and the you know opportunity. Wow. And these are in customers who actually have already done kind of the the current best practices. They've done the legwork to go in, you know, buy commitments to do minimal amounts of right sizing, but the problem is they're following these old best practices. They're backwards looking, mm -hmm. very manual, and guess what? These manual practices where you have to siphon off engineering time to make a config change or even buy a commitment, it doesn't work in a world that's built by the second you're not getting the most efficient implementation, even if you have the best strategy, if it, if there's a human in the loop there um, that has to go and do a lot of work instead of, you know, we have human in the loop, but it's click a button in Slack versus go and log in and do all this sort of overhead. Well, those bands sound pretty incredible. I mean, I, you know, 10 to 25% variance, but then that kind of that savings band too, really interesting. What level, you were talking earlier about, you know, some of that budgeting that look look forward budgeting what level of granularity can you get to and i'm even just think about something simple 
you know, my overall cloud services at a large organization, are you going to help me from a budgeting standpoint from a, you know, and ongoing chargeback say, hey, division one, business unit two, et cetera, et cetera, this is what you can expect and this is what you did to help me as an overall, overall organization really allocate those costs even, even better than uh, I could ordinarily. I think that's exactly it, right? The way that we think about it is you segment and you figure out who the business units are. And for each of those, you go in and create those forecasts, those plans that then we automate against. And every single day you're getting those or those teams are getting the actuals versus the budgeted and the predicted. And they're seeing which of those scenarios they're tracking against in their dashboard. They're getting those alerts in Slack. They're getting any anomalies or aberrant behavior delivered to them because the goal here is really to drive that predictability, You know, not just to predict it and then walk away and say, hey, that's our prediction. We don't have anything to do with this. Our goal is through the automation and then through the alerting of those specific teams to make sure you're as close to the actuals as possible. Because if we don't get that right, then we're shit out of luck as a business because we're we're taking risk based on stuff that is very unclear to us and we have no control over. We want to make sure that we have control over those forecasts so that we can actually share risk effectively amongst our customers and with our customers. What percentage of the value in Archera, uh, Iran, is is in the is in the model, is in the underlying technology? What percentage is in the people, and how are you how are you executing on the the people aspect, where you're getting into those details? You have a team that goes out to each customer, or not goes out, but that uh, speaks with each customer individually. Is this you know fifteen minutes, two hours, two weeks? How, take us through the process a little bit. If I want to engage Archera, what can I expect? Yeah, so there's a few different processes, and I think it really tracks with an organization's maturity and then the number of people, frankly, who are working on this problem. So generally for startups, we have a very lightweight process. We make it as self-service as possible because, you know, often startups don't care about tagging everything down and, you know, doing a lot of the governance work. Uh, even budgeting is, is sometimes stuff that startups will push off until, you know, they have a real kind of strong P&L motive uh, and, you know, cost of goods sold line item they need to... Uh, eke out and then optimize on the cloud. So it's a very quick process. It can be one meeting, 30 minutes to set them up with the platform, set them up with the initial automations, show them how to share risk. And uh, generally the numbers are so small that we can give them a really big budget in terms of how much risk they can share with us. So startups can pretty immediately just plug in, spend 15, 20 minutes with one of our customer service folks and click a button without any engineering time, get 20 to 35% right off their bill that next month. Um, so that's that's kind of the process on the low end. As customers grow, you know, we work with a lot more sophisticated organizations, folks like Fortive, we're a big Fortune 500 company up here in Washington. Uh, that's a more involved process. We have our solutions architecture team actually come in and set up those different segments, those different business units, work with the business unit engineering leaders to build those initial forecasts, make sure those forecasts are validated with the CIO, and then work with the individual teams to operationalize that. And often in that case, there's a FinOps team. So this could take you know anywhere from uh, two to four weeks with maybe two to three hours of time across the whole organization to set up. Usually it's pretty quick. We just have to do the 30 minute meeting with each of those teams, introduce them to the tool, show them how to build the forecast, and then make sure that they all get put in before the kickoff time when we uh, essentially will put the plan into action and, and start operating and saving the money. So it's a little bit more involved, but we try and make sure that at every step in that maturity journey from, you know, I have one engineer handling this who's reporting up to the CTO, and this is item three on their list to go in figure out budgets, figure out what we're going to use in the future and, and optimize it all the way up to the you know point where we have a full FinOps team or a cloud cool. center of excellence where there's dedicated resources here. But we want to make it so that that automation first approach is really easy for all of them and it meets them where they are in their journey. For, for someone, let's say there's a client that, uh, I don't know, they're using uh, AWS Athena, feels like they're, uh, you know, they, they like it, but they feel like they're wasting money with it as yeah. well. Are you? Is there is there an opportunity to go in and focus on a particular cloud service or two to say, hey, let's let's prototype this out, let's test it out. I think this is a big problem area yeah. for me. Is that a normal way to do it as well, or or no? We've seen that. So one of the okay. key things that we 
Uh, I was talking about our forecasting tool earlier and, and the amount of work and kind of effort we've put into that, building those scenarios and forecasted yeah. scenarios. Uh, you can create an arbitrary, what we call segment of your infrastructure. So if you want to focus on just a okay. few services or just a subset of services within a broader team, you can build that out and do, you know, do the basic analysis, the backwards looking stuff. But what you're talking about is a little bit more interesting. It's saying, hey, if you know, there's two things, right? Hey, if I want to buy commitments for this, I can go do that. Great. That's kind of simple analysis that we do on the back end. But hey, if I want to understand how is this uh, change if I move to a different database service? How does this change if I move to a different instance family within that service? Well, that's a very interesting question. And that's why we have this very kind of high fidelity scenario planner that I told you about earlier. I can actually make estimates. Again, this is not going to be perfect. I don't know your code, but I can make estimates based on things like the volume that you're processing, which you can upload to me, and the metrics I'm pulling off that uh, instance, and all the data I have from other customers to actually say, hey, if you moved from you know a C5 to a C6, if you moved from this data warehouse to this data warehouse, here's the expected lift you know, in scenario A, B, and C that you can um, assume will happen. And that you can actually do in scenario planning. And we've seen customers do that before, particularly engineers who want to figure out, look, I want the best thing for the job, but there's maybe 10 things that could do the job. What's the most effective from a pricing standpoint, yeah. given my environment, my contracts, my workload, and the variance in um, demand that I'm putting on those instances? Is there, when, when we talk about the kind of the, the monitoring and automation side, I guess, are there some triggers in place or alerts in place once you guys have established a client where, let's say, uh, a bad actor gets in and starts spinning up a bunch of, you know, EC2 instances uh, that the client maybe does not know about, not aware of, yeah. are those things that you've you've seen or you've picked up or, or you're immediately aware of and you go, wait a minute, big time anomaly, hang on, Mr. Client, we, we need to talk about this one. Th thankfully, that specific one where a crypto miner or someone takes over an account, yeah. 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 haven't seen that in our customer base, but we do catch anomalies all the time. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a key part of uh, saying, hey, I have this forecasted plan. I need to make sure that the, the teams are sticking to it. And those anomalies in spend are one of the biggest reasons why budgets get blown up. And we try and get very, very strict on that. So we are actually monitoring hourly for stuff like that. And some of the, the weird things that we've caught are, you know, when an engineer pushes a Lambda that happens to be recursive. That has blown up budgets in, in a matter of hours before. Uh, we've seen folks turn on things like detailed logging for massive segments of their infrastructure, and it blows up the budget in two days. So things like that, we catch basically you know an hour or two after they go live and try and ring all the alarm bells we can, you know, usually through Slack messages and emails to get someone to look at it and correct it. Because one of the key things from a security standpoint that we do is we try and take permissions to automate everything that cannot touch underlying infrastructure. So commitments and contracts, all that stuff, your EDP and EA, we can manage the crap out of that because that doesn't have any way of impacting anything but the bill. But anything that actually will impact your customer data, your customer uptime, will never touch that. And we'll want the human in the loop. We want the engineer in the loop for that. So we try and make it clear when customers have to act, when engineers have to act, uh, but be judicious about it. Right. We yeah. don't want to be ringing the alarm bell for something that's like, oh, this is a C3, but it could be a C2. That goes way to the bottom of the list. It's fascinating. Do you do you keep as a company some sort of a tally uh, on dollars saved for your client base? Like a, you, know, you see that sometimes with with various organizations, you know, we've we've saved our client base X millions of dollars or whatever the number is. Are you guys doing that or do you plan on doing that? We we do track it. You know, I think we on average, every single month, they're saving on the order of like eight to ten million dollars for our customers. But again, a lot of this is, you know, what can you attribute to us? Which is why we actually don't charge on a percentage of spend or a percentage of savings basis. We just charge based on the amount of data that you're sending us. Uh, so if you're using big boxes or small boxes, it doesn't matter. We give you the same rate if you're using n boxes, uh, and that's because, you know, I think to the customer's credit, they're really savvy about this. They know what the right thing to do is. They want to do the right thing, but it's just so freaking complex from the AWS side. It's so freaking complex from an operational side that they need a tool like this to do it. And that tool, and you know, this is another problem I saw when I started the company in the space, that tool shouldn't tax 3 to 5% of your whole total cloud spend, especially if you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year. That tool should be something that is 
working with your team to help them put those plans that they already have in their heads into action in the most effective way possible. So while, you know, it's great, we can take credit for every commitment purchase we've recommended to customers. We can take credit for every cost anomaly that was averted and, you know, project that forward five days or 10 days in case we weren't there. But and we track it and we report it back to customers. But mm -hmm. honestly, the way that I think about it is the customer wants to do the right thing. We're a tool to enable them to do that. And we don't want to take an undue tax on them for, for that. So we'll give them a nice high level number, but we won't charge them a big chunk of it. Did you, did you, did you either think about or try that out in the beginning, kind of that percentage of savings approach, just determined based on all those things you just said, now this is just not going to work or right out of the gate, you said that's not the right, uh, right way to go. Yeah. So, I mean, some of our early SMB customers, we tried that with when I was just starting yeah. the business before our seed round. But, you know, frankly, what I understood from working with so many large customers within AWS and Azure is that, especially what they get as they get to scale, this backwards looking visibility stuff or cost optimization and cloud management in general is not something that they would be willing to pay, you know, some fraction of total spend for. It doesn't make sense, especially when you can consider the alternatives being hiring that Netflix team or that Airbnb team of engineers to go and work on this for, you know, at that scale, a similar cost. So the way that we think about it is how do we be most aligned with the customers? How do we have a model that's as customer obsessed as possible, where we obviously process more data and have more cost for bigger customers and we need to scale up with them, but we're not punitive. We're not acting like a tax on their total spend, which is, I think, the big problem from a mental perspective, but also just from a logical perspective that people see with that, you know, three to five percent of spend or savings uh, model that is so pervasive in the industry right now. Yeah. Hey, when I was looking at our, our chair uh, and prepping for this, I was just curious: Are there particular types of cloud services that you find uh, all organizations just broadly are wasting the most money on? And just curious why that might be. Well, you know, my bias is is obviously to say uh, compute, like just mm -hmm. standard EC2 uh, or, okay. you know, Azure VMs, because it's not because people are generally using it poorly. It's because people don't know that there's so many dimensions across which they can optimize and use it like 2x better, right? So with EC2, for example, there are tons of options just in terms of how you can host an underlying application. And all of those have cost uh, ramifications and availability and performance ramifications. But then one le level above that, there are, for each of those resources, 36 to 72 different contract configurations you can use to actually cover those resources. And each of those have different flexibility levelers, different upfront levers, different discount rates, depending on which availability zone or data center they're in. And driving some sort of optimization from the back of the napkin through that entire space of uh, potential configurations of how to host your application, it's actually an NP hard problem. It, across many of those dimensions, it's an NP hard problem. If I know exactly what I'm going to use even, mm -hmm. and I want to say, hey, how do I allocate my upfront dollars across this basket of 20 EC2 instances that I'm going to use for one year, three year, and two year, right? That's an NP hard problem. So mm -hmm. it's so complicated that while people are doing a reasonable job right now, according to the existing best practices, what they don't know is they could be doing so, so much better. And I think that's one of the key things that when we go into an environment of a new customer, particularly one that has a FinOps team and has been following the best practices from the book and all of that stuff, they're astounded by is how much they missed by not looking at it through this lens of, okay, start at first principles. I've basically 36,000 contracts, I configurations to parse through, let me find the best one. That's not where they start. They start with, all right, all no partial upfront, one year, three year, right? They'll, you know, reduce it to 10 choices, but that's, that's yeah. not reflective of what is, what could be optimal. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, I use a, uh, I use a utility optim, I guess a utility optimization service called Energy Ogre. They're always, you yeah. know, paying 10 bucks a month. They're constantly looking for, hey, what's that next plan that you should be on maybe it's in six months three months nine months yeah. is is that type of of a and that's very simplistic probably but it, 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 are you to that point where you go let's say i've got up services we recommend that you know you you jump over to AW, uh, azure you jump over to gcp or you take this snowflake service or databricks service over to one or the other is that there is it something you're thinking about kind of that proactive moving me 
maybe sometimes even without, uh, you know, just I, I trust you enough to do the right thing. Is is that where things are going or am I leaping too far ahead here? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the near term, we're not at that level where we can, for you know, many arbitrary services say you have to move how you're hosting this, how you're provisioning it. But where we are right now and where a ton of savings is coming from is as yeah. your consumption evolves, we can look at that contract portfolio that you have and really start to optimize that in the background saying, hey, you actually need a three year for this. We need to sell this one back. We need to actually put in you know, two contracts with a guaranteed buyback right here for this thing that it might be short lived, might not be. So that's something that yeah. in fact, in the background we can do automatically. And that actually is something that from my perspective is much more valuable because of the fact that it takes zero engineering time. If anything, it's a single click. And because it doesn't involve rehosting the application or moving things around it doesn't have to ever go on the jira board or or into the github issue it can be a one click in slack and often the savings that you get are comparable to, to rehosting the thing so from my perspective i think it's really great as a long-term vision to get to the point where you can make those changes uh, automatically or start to plan that out for customers. But as long as the customer tells us they're going to make the change in the future, what we can do on the back end with contracts, if you're looking at just a P&L perspective, is compelling enough, especially given the zero effort that you have to put in on the engineering side, that it becomes sufficient to drive really great results for customers kind of right out of the box without them having to go and invest a lot to to actually make config changes or or go and review recommendations right that's great that's great i could i could stay on this for a long time but i, I did want to switch a little bit just into the the business side of things uh around if possible i noticed you guys uh, did a name change can you talk about what drove that yeah, totally. So we did a name change in conjunction with the Series A round that we just raised uh, at the end of Q3 of last year. Uh, and a big part of it was the fact that we started as an AWS, primarily AWS service, uh, and one that really focused in on that commitment automation piece that we were talking about. But as we grew um, you know, beyond the SMB customer base and startup customer base that we started with to working with more enterprises, folks like you know, Fortive, who I was telling you about, um, our offering grew. Not only were we just offering reserved instances optimization, which is a very specific AWS construct, but we were doing this forecasting and planning in service of, of making that better. We were doing these right-sizing and reprovisioning recommendations and scheduling in the service of making that uh, commitment plan even better. We're doing these guaranteed buybacks of commitments in service of helping folks actually deal with automation and, and de-risk a lot of the uh, issues that would come with kind of handing this over to a robot uh, to run for you. So the service offering grew in terms of what we were doing for customers and the platforms that we were operating on grew. We've launched Azure and Kubernetes, uh, we're launching Google this year and, and uh, putting Azure into kind of a full public release uh, within the next quarter. So there's just a lot more breadth in terms of what we were able to do for customers that our name just wasn't reflective of. So as a function yeah. of that, we felt that it made a lot of sense in conjunction with our fundraising uh, to actually change the name of the business to reflect that breadth. And the way that we got to our chair actually was the fact that beyond just finding the best config of contracts, you know, hitting the bullseye there, uh, we were we were actually hitting the bullseye multiple places in terms of the best forecast, in terms of you know the best listings for you to buy back commitments, uh, in terms of how we attribute costs. We're hitting the bullseye in terms of each dollar being attributed to the right team, each dollar of savings and budget. So because we can hit the bullseye in four or five different places, we're we're no longer a one point solution. We're we're an archer that can hit the bullseye constantly, automatically for customers, and that's really where the uh, name Archera came from. Very nice. I like it. And you mentioned the uh, the Series A that you guys raised, I think seven million bucks back in uh, September of last year. I always like that. Did you enjoy that process of, of raising? And you guys have some great uh, partners, it looks like, with Ridge and Amplify. Did you enjoy the process personally, though, or was it uh, you know just kind of a burden? No, I mean, look, I think you ask any founder about fundraising, they're going to give you a mixed answer because it's never fun to go and, and pitch and pitch and pitch and, you know, rework and, and try and get uh, people bought in. But on the other hand, you're meeting so many interesting people. Uh, I think connecting with a lot of these VCs was 
you know, a treat for me because a lot of them had great ideas. They were very interesting. They introduced me to super interesting portfolio companies or other founders. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, you know, it's like a, a grind from like a sales perspective. It's almost like grinding yeah. like a, like a seller. Uh, and, you know, you ask any seller, they love the outcome. They love getting the bonus at the end of the year, but they maybe didn't love every step of the uh, kind of process to go close all those deals. And I think it's very similar here. I, I love the people I met. I loved the, uh, kind of positive outcomes of the process. And, uh, you know, the process itself was a bit tedious. And I, I, <laughs> some people are great at it. I, I'm learning. Yeah. How many, just curious, how many pitches you had to make and what was your total, you talked about the sales process. What was the total sales process to get to that Series A win, if you will? Oh, wow. So I think in terms of the number of pitches I had to make, easily over 100. Wow. Um, I mean, Amazing. multiple, it, multiple it, it, pitches for multiple firms as well. Yeah. So, you know, one firm I'd have to go pitch three or four times. It was over four or five months, I would say. Okay. So you were, uh, yeah, you were absolutely, that was, that was full-time job then. That was a full-time job. <laughs> That's about that was all a, you were doing. That's awesome. And, and then I had my night roll, which is running this company. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. How are you, how are people finding out about our chair? Obviously, hopefully, hopefully we can do our part through the podcast, but, but how, how are, are people finding out? You guys have a Slack community, you've got a Discord. What, what's going on to really drive people to our chair? Yeah, so we've got a bit of a community amongst our users and other folks who are interested in the FinOps space. We attend a ton of FinOps meetups and um, meet potential customers and other folks with insight on the space there. Uh, we're also a partner with AWS and Azure. So through those partnerships and what we can help their customers do in terms of using their platforms more efficiently and you know buying more commitments so they have more, more folks mm -hmm. locked in, which they love, we are able to get a good number of introductions there. Uh, and then lastly, we reach out to a lot of customers uh, locally and kind of throughout the uh, US and West Coast, uh, who are really the kind of organizations over the last year that we've been trying to reach and uh, connect with and see if there's opportunity in. So a good amount of direct outreach as well. But cool. you know, we're always looking to find new ways to find customers and uh, you know, hopefully someone finds us on this podcast. I, I bet they will. I, and you've mentioned ThinOps a few times. I'm familiar with the terminology, but can, for those that are not, would you would you mind just defining it at a high level when you say thin, you know, DevOps, DataOps, yeah. MLOps, and ThinOps? Where does ThinOps fit into the whole picture? Yeah, so FinOps or you know the financial side of DevOps is is a fairly new concept, and it grew out of the fact that you know, engineers having to manage a lot of the infrastructure purchasing and contracts, that's a very new phenomenon that came with the cloud. Because before it would be procurement, you'd have to have the engineers go to procurement and ask mm -hmm. to buy a box and it would kind of filter through finance. Now the, the script is flipped. You have engineers running ahead with the credit card, going and buying stuff. And FinOps is essentially the uh, remedy to the fact that procurement was running behind them with a fire mm. extinguisher trying to put out all these fires they were creating as they were kind of powering forward, trying to build and innovate. And FinOps is this idea that you actually need a cross-functional uh, person or team that can interface between engineering and the business side, the finance side of the house uh, to make sure that one, things weren't being used and wasted in an undue manner. And then two, innovation wasn't being slowed by just aggressive overhead and process that could come in place from a legacy finance team trying to get control of this. It's really an interesting role because it is cross-functional and it does have to balance these competing interests of going fast, but also being prudent with what you're using and how you spend it with all of these new sort of self-service cloud tools that all of our infrastructure is going into being hosted on. Yeah, and I, I love the way you guys have, that's a great uh, definition, by the way, I appreciate that. And I love the way you guys have priced these tiers out. So you talked earlier about not charging as uh, for a percentage of, of savings. I noticed you've got a, you got a free tier, this is a starter tier that is I, I mean, I can I can try you guys out, uh, no no risk or anything. You're even your mid tier, even up to five thousand uh, dollars or less of monthly looks like it's free. And then of course I can go go enterprise. Yeah. So um, how is there is there some uh, rule of thumb on that? Or do you do you plan on providing any additional transparency by any chance into that enterprise, or those more one off negotiations every time? 
yeah, we, we're actually going through a repricing exercise right now. So quite soon you'll see an update to that page. But generally on the enterprise end, you know, it's really a function of how much time we have to put in. Because some yeah. enterprise accounts, they have a FinOps team, they have an operating culture. They just don't want to go build a lot of software to support that, right? But other teams, they're just on you know day one of this journey. Not to lean too heavily on my Amazon experience with their their day one motto, but you know they're really in the early days and they require a lot of work from our team to you know not just set them up, but to also train the individual engineering teams on how to operate in this model with a actual FinOps department that we would be essentially putting in for them. And I think given that, the pricing changes because the commitment from our team to support the customer changes along that spectrum. Really good. And we're, we're I, I'm losing track of time here. We're coming up on it. Let me ask you this. If you were not in, in tech today, and I know you talked about you know, a few things early on. Is there something that you, you know, obviously you'll be with our chair uh, working this for a long time, but yeah. if there was something else that you would like to do that was outside of this tech space, what would it, would it be back in biotech or, or something else? Yeah. So I think, you know, the two things that I, I was passionate about that I worked on early in my career that I talked about, one is privacy. And, and I think that's, you know, broadened out to not just consumer privacy, but you know, also general consumer protection and platform transparency with cool. all of the platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Venmo, et cetera, that we're using today in our daily lives. Something I'm very passionate about. And I think um, you know, from a public benefit standpoint, there is a lot of ground that still needs to be covered there. And I'd love to be a part of that. I actually still give talks on digital privacy and the issues with machine learning being applied to our private data and sort of the invasive insights or issues that could come out of that uh, even to this day. And then on the other side, I think, yes, biotech now looks very different from biotech in 2011 because of the fact that you have these not just the incredible innovations that I think some of them were, were bubbling up in 2011, but you have this incredible stack of tooling that was built to, to really make those available to builders uh, at the smallest scale. So things like OpenAI, sorry, not OpenAI, uh, Google recently put out a very interesting paper and piece of code on protein folding, which I think could be you know foundational in building an, a generation of businesses in the biotech space with probably 90% computation and 10% benchwork instead of the opposite, which is really what scared me away from the space. Uh, so that's definitely something that I'm very interested in. I think there's massive opportunity in to make human lives just net, net better across the board. Very nice. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun, uh, Ron. Really enjoyed it. Very, very interesting. I think it's a it's a space I've got uh, tremendous uh, just respect for what you guys are doing and and how you're doing it. I would just tell everybody, you know, if you're looking to improve process, automation, and predictions around your cloud costs, you got to check these guys out. Give Ron and team a call. Thank you so much for joining the show today. I really uh, look forward to keeping up with everything. And just uh, thank you and appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, likewise, Kelly. It was great meeting you. And uh, just one more time, if, if your uh, listeners want to find us, we are at archerea.ai, and you can go and plug in, request a demo, get a free trial going, and, and see what we're all about if you're interested in optimizing your cloud spend. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at A-R-A-N-K-H-A-N-N-A. -A -N -N -A. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Kelly. No, that is awesome. And we'll be sure and link those things up too in the show notes. Aron, thanks so much. Thanks for everybody that listened in today. We really appreciate each one of you and look forward to getting any feedback or comments. We will see you soon on another episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.